Thank you, brother. If you guys would, open with me to Revelation chapter 1. I know when the guest preacher says Revelation, everybody goes, oh, we're not getting into the craziness of all the debates, I promise. But I am looking forward to preaching uh, through this with you today. Hey, if you're a guest today, there are some Bibles in the pew. If you don't have one, I know Redemption Church wants you to take one of these. And Pastor Jimbo uh, always asks people to just read the first few pages. It just summarizes what the gospel's about. And if you want to know where we are in this Bible today, the the... The uh, passage I'm going to be preaching from is on page 870, so that's right close to the end. Revelation is the last book of the Bible. I'd love for you to join in and read along uh, as we go through this passage here in Revelation chapter 1, okay? So I want to introduce this passage to you this morning by asking you, who's your hero? Who are you with? I think a lot of the times we miss the point of the book of Revelation because we read it we read passages like the Olivet Discourse in Mark 13 and in Matthew and Luke, and we, we read those, and we read them asking when. And that's not the question these passages are answering. These passages are answering who and why. And this morning, we're going to get a little bit of the who. All I hope for today, um, the, f- the first time I preached through this, uh, this passage, I called it Easter the sequel, okay? Uh, in other words, Jesus is coming again. Uh, and so we want to see who's coming for us. And the question I want to ask you is, are you with this hero? So I went to college. Uh, I started out at Community College. I'm from North Mississippi. North Mississippi, almost everyone does that. Uh, and then I went on to Ole Miss. I hope you've heard of Ole Miss. Great university. But anyway, uh, so I went to Ole Miss. And my last year at Ole Miss, I, I, I did a degree in education. I, I student taught. And I had to come back one semester for like a couple classes, and I needed a uh, literature, uh, I needed one literature class to get one of the minors I was uh, doing as a minor, and so I, I saw a class, African American Lit 2, and uh, it just seemed, the description of it seemed awesome to me, so I took this class, and when I walk in, it's a small classroom, it's one of the last classes I'm taking, I sat down, and I noticed that the other guys coming in this room are swole, okay, uh, y'all, y'all know what I'm saying? Uh, these guys are, are, are big, all right? Uh, and so this one guy walks in and sits down in front of me, and he is particularly cut. Like, this man needs Band-Aids, okay? Uh, and he sits down in front, and his muscles have muscles. And I realize there's a lot of football players in here, you know? Uh, this was during the Ed Orgeron era at Ole Miss. If any of you know Ole Miss sports, uh, he's now at LSU, but that horrid place Jimbo loves. But anyway, uh, so this was during his time period. And we had a, we had a football player there named Patrick Willis. Uh, his nickname was P. Willie. Now, Patrick went on to play for the San Francisco 49ers for like 12 seasons. He was NFL Rookie of the Year his first couple years. Um, and everybody, and, and his, that season he had had, he played with a broken arm and he's got a club on his hand, basically. He was a linebacker. Uh, just cool guy. Well, I knew some things about Patrick, but I didn't know any of those guys. I was not an athlete, okay? I was a band geek. Band paid for three years of college, so band geeks unite. This guy sits down in front of me, and as they start calling the role, the teacher says, Patrick Willis. She saves it to last, and she goes, and Patrick Willis. And he goes, here. And I go, good grief, that's P. Willie sitting in front of me. Well, a week later, she pairs us up with study partners, and lo and behold, she pairs me up with Patrick Willis. Now, y'all, I grew up an Ole Miss fan, okay? I've always, I was on cloud nine. I'm like, I am study partners, not just with a football player. He's the football player on campus right now. 
And I, I got to know Patrick just a little bit. We lost touch. When he got in the pros, we would message a little bit. So I don't mean to sound like I'm name dropping. And then all of a sudden, he had a big game, and his Facebook feed blew up. And I never heard from him again. I, I have another friend who played with him who says he remembers me, and we'll get in touch one day. But I haven't heard from him in years. But I, I, I studied with Patrick, and as I got to know him, he told me that that year he had become a believer. And uh, we were we were studying one day, and he invited me to FCA, Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Now, there's also BSU in Mississippi here. That's BCM, Baptist Campus Ministry. Uh, and my schedule just didn't fit BCM uh, that year. And so Patrick invites me to FCA, and I say, sure, I'll go. Y'all, I walked in, and I didn't know what was fixing to happen. I walked in with Patrick Willis. Nobody in that room knew who I was, but all of a sudden I was the second coolest guy in the room. Todd Abernathy, the point guard for the basketball team who led worship there, he comes up to meet me, and I'm like, wait a minute. And he ain't just greeting me at FCA, you know. Uh, and the running back who went on to play for the Patriots, Ben Jarvis Green-Ellis, he, he wasn't a believer, but he, he played there. He comes up to meet me, and, and just I'm like, this is awesome. These people think I'm cool. And then I realize, it ain't got nothing to do with me. It has absolutely nothing to do with me. I'm with him. And because I'm with him... Everybody else has accepted me, and everybody else thinks that I'm something better than I am. So this morning, church, as we look at Revelation 1, the question I want to ask you, who are you with? Is this who you're with? Is this your Jesus? I, I'm not asking even, are you a follower of Jesus? Because there's a lot of people who follow an idol that they call Jesus, but they don't follow Jesus. Are you following the Jesus of Scripture? This is the only time in the Bible, that a physical description is given of Jesus. Now, this physical description isn't even physical. It's apocalyptic. So let's talk about that just a second before we dive into Revelation 1 and see who we need to be with. Uh, I promise we're going to work through the text. There's just some setup we need here. So we're answering the question, is this who you're with? That's what I want you asking. Now, I want us to look at how we approach this. We approach it as apocalyptic literature, okay? Now, what does that mean? The Bible is made up of different books. We know that. But these books are different genres of literature. Now, they're more than just works of literature. This is the Holy Spirit-inspired, perfect Word of God. Okay, But they are works of literature. So we need to approach them as the works of literature that they are. What I mean by that is you don't read a math book the same way you read a novel. right? You don't read a poetry book. The, the same way that you read a multi-series science fiction you know, series, okay? Uh, we have different genres of literature, and those genres come with rules on how we approach them. Well, Revelation, the second half of Daniel is the first one. I believe it's one of the first ever written in apocalyptic literature. Um, Revelation is a type of literature known as apocalyptic. Uh, and apocalyptic literature works off imagery. Apocalyptic literature works on, on images. It's almost your first century movie. And all of these images have literal meaning. So don't, if you hear me saying that Revelation's figurative, that's not what I'm saying. I am saying that Revelation used figurative imagery to communicate literal truth. Uh, Azardia, who's a, a great biblical studies guy, a great preacher, he said, when John writes Revelation, he doesn't mean what he says, he means what he means. Now, if you think I'm saying the Bible's wrong, you're hearing me wrong, uh, here's what I mean. It works a lot like today's poetry, okay? Poetry isn't literal, but it does have literal meaning. For instance, roses are red, violets are blue, sugar is sweet, and so are you. Now, yes, roses are red and violets are blue, if you consider that blue, but the sugar is sweet and so are you. That's not literal, okay? 
we don't literally mean that 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 apple of our eye (laughs) is sweet. When we call someone cupcake or sweetie, sugar pie, any of those things, we don't mean that literally, do we? If you do, there's another guy we need to get you to talk to after service, okay? Um, We don't mean that. I'm convinced one day, pickup lines, the way we talk to our our spouses has always been this way. I'm convinced one day some archaeologist is going to dig up a love letter from a husband to a wife, and it ends with sweetie or something. He's going to say, why did he tell her that she makes him fat and gives him diabetes? Why would he ever say that to her? Uh, And pickup lines have always been that way. Song of Solomon, your hair is like a flock of goats running down the side of a mountain. Y'all try that one out, fellas, okay? We, we've never meant these things literal. We mean them figuratively, right? But we do mean what we're saying. Are y'all with me? Yes, no, you're not Jimbo. Are y'all with me? So what I want you to see as we go through this passage in Revelation 1, that while he speaks figuratively, he means something very literal about this one that we need to be with. So let's start and see what's going on here in Revelation 1. Uh, I'm not going to read through the whole passage because we need to experience this as the original audience that's mentioned here would have experienced it. We'll go through a verse at a time or maybe a couple verses at a time and see what's going on. Revelation 1, beginning in verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Now, let's just start right there. A trumpet, you already see it, and he's clear. A voice like a trumpet. He's giving you imagery already. This is apocalyptic literature, okay? So what does it mean that this voice is like a trumpet? Well, back then, you blew a trumpet or a shofar, which is actually like a ram's horn that you see them blow, to make an announcement, right? This voice is going to announce something, so let's keep going. Verse 11, the voice was saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and Laodicea. These seven churches are are written specifically addressed in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. But right here we get something very interesting in these churches at this moment when they hear that verse, they go, what? What do you mean? See, he didn't say, speak to the churches. He said, write. That's significant because in the Old Testament, when a prophet is told to write, it's the idea that judgment has come. It's the idea that judgment is about to be pronounced. These churches hear that John is told, write to these churches. Judgment's about to be pronounced. Now, these churches have issues. Let's just look for a second at these churches. The first one he names is Ephesus. Ephesus is a bunch of Pharisees. Ephesus has forgotten their first love. They don't love people. They're all about doctrine. Heavy hitters have been through this town. Paul, John himself later is probably going there. Timothy, we have, we have big names go through Ephesus. Okay, They know doctrine up one side and down the other, but they don't love anybody. You know what? That's the reason people leave the church. When people see cold-heartedness, people leave. The next thing we see here, though, is from Ephesus, that with their issues, we go to, uh, let's see, Ephesus and to Smyrna. Now, Smyrna has outside issues. 
Smyrna's about to experience terrible persecution. If you've ever heard of their pastor down the road from this time period, but they have a pastor named Polycarp. If you've never researched Polycarp, you want to know Polycarp. Polycarp, when they come to arrest him, fixes lunch for the guys that come to arrest him so he can tell them about Jesus before they arrest him. When they bring him before the tribunal, the man just, he's like, bring it. You know, I mean, he, he, he is bold, but at the same time kind. Uh, and Polycarp is killed in the Colosseum for, for Jesus. He's, he's a, a just tremendous figure to study. But that's going to be the pastor at Smyrna. Um, they're going to experience bad persecution. You know, when things get hard in the church, that's a reason people leave. Well, they don't have the money. To, maybe we don't have people busting in the doors on us right now, but well, they don't have the money. They don't have this. They don't have that. They, they can't do this. People leave. People leave when times get hard in the church. We're going to see another one like that. That's a reason people leave. So they got issues. Then you got Pergamum and Thyatira. Pergamum and Thyatira, that's the churches everybody looks at and goes, well, they're just a bunch of hypocrites. <laughs> Aren't we all? We're all hypocrites, just some of us are more bold about it, okay? We all need Jesus, and we all claim that, and we all want to be Christian little Christ, and we all fail every day. Pergamum and Thyatira is a special case. These folks... They have trade guilds in these cities. And if you don't participate in the trade guilds, then nobody buys your stuff. And if nobody buys your stuff, your family starves. The problem with these trade guilds is that they're all centered on the God of that guild. And they had to worship and participate in pagan ceremonies to these gods and these guilds. And these ceremonies had not just the name of the God on it, but terrible things were involved in these ceremonies. And if they didn't do those, they were thrown out of the guild and they starved. So you've got these people who claim to follow Christ and here they are at these crazy pagan worship services. And you've got people going, well, they don't really follow Jesus. And Jesus addresses that. And he's like, look, I know you've tried, I know you've done these things, but you've got to break off from the idolatry, basically. That's a reason people leave the church. Well, I know what they say, but I see how they live during the week. Look, if you want a reason to leave the church, Satan will make sure you got one. Okay. And that's, that's what we got in Pergamum and Thyatira. From Pergamum and Thyatira, we go on to Sardis. Now, Sardis, Sardis is the opposite of Ephesus. Sardis loves everybody. Let's just, let's do church the way everybody wants to do it, and let's attract a crowd, and, and we, everybody here is good. We love it. They're a mile wide and an inch deep. They have no depth, and they claim to follow Jesus, but they stand for nothing. It's also a reason people leave the church. Well, I'm just not fed there. They don't go deep enough. I, I, they just, all they're about is all the, the flashing lights and all those things. And people leave the church for that. That's Sardis. That's Sardis. He's told, you, you need to know more than just, you've you got to stand for something. You're accepting stuff that shouldn't be accepted. And then we got Philadelphia. They're a lot like Smyrna. They got outside pressure. And then we got Laodicea. Laodicea is First Baptist Church. And I say that tongue-in-cheek, we, where I'm from, uh, I serve at New Palestine Baptist Church in Picayune, Mississippi. You can ask me about all those words later. They're real fun to explain. But I, I serve there at First Baptist Church. We've got a great relationship with. But traditionally, if you go to a First Baptist Church, that's where the money people in town are, especially in small towns like ours, you know? Laodicea's got money coming out their nose. But they got so much money that they think they don't need Jesus. When they lead their letter, when they're destroyed by an earthquake, the city actually tells Rome, we're rich, we're prospered, we don't need anything. And Jesus quotes that back to them in chapter 3. All they care about is money and self. That's the reason a lot of people leave the church. Well, they all think they're better than me. Y'all, does it sound like these churches have issues? 
And what's Jesus just said? Write to them, John. What is his going to be his judgment to these churches that have issues? Let's see what happens in the next verse. Verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And that's kind of hard for them to figure out. So in verses 20 and 21, he just explains they represent the churches. You know what I mean? The seven lampstands are the seven churches. You got to say that with me. Seven lampstands are the seven. Good job. All right, let's keep going. Verse 12, he sees the seven golden lampstands. Verse 13, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. That's imagery from Daniel chapter 7 when Daniel turns apocalyptic. The Ancient of Days sits on his throne, as we see in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, who he really is. He sits on his throne in Daniel 7, and one like a son of man approaches him as the hero. This is the hero. This is the one they need to be with, and let's see where he is. Look at 13 again. Where is that son of man? In the midst of what? Of the churches. Y'all don't miss that. I don't get the carriage ahead of the horse, as we say. Jesus is with his church, even when his church has issues. Y'all don't miss this. I, I, I know, I, I want you to understand that the tension grows for these churches. These churches are sitting here and they're going, what are you going to do with this, Jesus? Why are you here? We have the benefit of knowing the whole book and knowing the story. So I want to go ahead and get the carriage ahead of the horse. Spoiler alert type thing. Jesus is with his church even when his church has issues. Until that church rejects him as the Christ or preaches a false gospel, Jesus is with his church. So you should be too. As a college student, I wanted to leave the church. I looked around and I gave all these excuses. I tried to give the Ephesus excuse. I tried to give the hypocrite excuse. I tried to give the I can learn better on my own excuse. I tried to give the, well, they're just better and they don't reach out to lower people. I, I, I gave all those excuses. And I thought, I can do this on my own. I love Jesus. I don't like the church. Guess what? I'm just as messed up as any church I've ever walked in. I just got my own issues. Y'all, if you ever find a perfect church, I'll tell you what to do. This is, this is good, practical advice. If you find the perfect church, you want to know what to do? Run, that's a cult. There is no perfect church. We all got our issues, okay? The beautiful thing is, is we got a Savior who's with us even while we have issues. Don't leave the church because Jesus is with his church. You with me? That's, if, if you're a college student, you're a high school student, you're at the age where most people leave. Don't leave the church. Jesus is with his church, even when they got issues. But remember here that these churches are hearing this, and they're going, why are you with us, Jesus? Remember, this is just they're hearing this for the first time. How are you going to judge us, Jesus? So let's keep going. Now we get into the real figurative stuff, and we'll pick up speed a little bit, okay? So verse 13, we see that he's with the churches. Halfway through verse 13, it says, clothed with a long robe. Now, this is interesting. If you've got a King James, King Jimmy as we call it in my church, it's, it's one of the best translations on this word. It's a really hard translation. Uh, and we've really never improved on it since 1611. But King James gives the idea that the robe is growing. 
And that's the idea here. A long robe, a robe that is longing or, or growing. It's flowing, but it keeps flowing. Why is that, that, why is that there? We all, in the ancient world, the symbolism here is the longer the robe, the more powerful the man. When you watch movies of gladiators, you see the gladiators in short skirts because they're slaves. But you see the Roman emperor in this train behind him that sometimes people even have to help carry because he's the most powerful. The longer the robe, the more powerful the man. Well, if this one's robe continues and continues and continues, he's all-powerful. We have an all-powerful one who's with the churches. And then it says he has a golden sash around his chest. Now, what's the idea there? Today, that verse might have been written this way. He had a long black robe and a gavel in his hand, and people stood when he entered the room. What is he? A judge. Golden sash, first century Rome. This is a judge. We have an all-powerful judge who's about to pronounce judgment on the churches. Are you all with me? They're going, okay, just tell us, John. Every time I read this, I'm reading through it. I'm like, these churches had to feel like I felt when I gave my dad my report card, and I just wondered if that 86 was good enough. You know, Uh, that's that's kind of how they're they're here. All right, so let's let's keep going. So, verse 14, the hair of his head was white, like white wool, like snow. What's the idea of the whitest hair? You want to say wisdom, but it's wisdom for a reason. And it's not purity either. It's age. Daniel chapter 7, the ancient of days, is described as having the whitest hair. And here, this one who approached the ancient of days is shown to be the ancient of days. It's beautiful. The whitest hair means he's eternal. You with me? We have an everlasting, all-powerful judge who's with the church. Let's keep going. Keep going. Verse, uh, verse 15, I'm sorry, end uh, of verse 14. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Now, what's the deal with that? Eyes in the ancient world are the symbol of learning. The Greek word to learn is literally to take up to the eyes. Okay? If this one has eyes of fire, there's nothing he can't know. If you hide it in the dark, his eyes would illuminate it. If you put it under a covering, his eyes would burn the covering away. This is the all-knowing, all-powerful, everlasting judge who's with the church. But here's the problem. If he's all-knowing, he knows everything you've ever done. He knows everything I've ever done. He knows every thought I had that crossed all the ungodly lines of thoughts. He knows everything I've ever wanted to do. He knows how bad I could be if it weren't for him. He knows everything, and he's here to pronounce judgment. Let me get the carriage ahead of the horse again. He knows everything, and he's still with the church. That's good. But we'll see that in a minute. Let's keep going. Verse 16. I'm sorry, verse 15. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. That's the idea of metal feet. This is the idea that he would trample his enemies. But it's also the idea that his wrath against sin would be bitter. Later in Revelation, we see this one with bronze feet treading out the wine press of God's wrath against sin. And we don't like to talk about God's wrath against sin being bitter. But folks, you don't want a God who's not angered by sin. You do not want a God who won't punish sin. You don't want a God who looks at a child molester and says, we'll let it slide. And who looks at Hitler and says, we'll let it slide. Now, 
because we are depraved, we want him to look at our little cuss words that we say when we stub our toe and our bad thoughts and when I ate too much chicken the other day and let that slide. But he doesn't let that slide either. See, that's the problem. You know, we have these sins, alcoholism, this terrible sin, but gluttony we can joke about from the pulpit. In Proverbs, God puts those two in the same sentence. You know, we, 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 have, we, we got to see that all sin is sin. Now, sure, in the Old Testament, yes, there's degrees, but Adam and Eve broke a dietary law and everything messed up. We forget that what we think are our little small sins are enough to mess everything up as bad as Adam and Eve messed up. We're in that scene. And here he is, one who's angry at sin. Why does that imagery that he's angry at sin? Let me go back to that. When you tread out a wine press, you do it with shoes off. Because if you step on grapes with shoes on, you'll crush the seeds, and that makes the wine bitter. If this one's got metal feet, the idea is going to be that the wrath of God towards sin is bitter. Why wouldn't it be? He made a perfect creation, and there literally wouldn't even be the prick of a thorn if we hadn't sinned. Every natural disaster, every diagnosis of cancer, every skint knee, every headache is a result of sin. And I don't mean necessarily you did this, therefore you have a headache. I mean none of that would exist if it weren't for sin in general. How could God not be angry at something that brought that much pain into the world? He wouldn't be good. His wrath against sin is bitter and he's here to pronounce judgment. That's getting scary. All right, let's go. His voice, this is the end of verse 15, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. Y'all, this is not the calm, trickling brook at the spa you hear right before you get the pedicure. Man, if you've never had a pedicure, go change your life and quit making fun of me for it like Jimbo does, okay? It's awesome, and your wife will thank you the next time your foot hits her leg in bed, okay? Go get a pedicure. They always have those nice little water sounds. That's not the idea here, okay? The idea here is rushing water, just torrential 2007, I was preaching at Charleston Southern University during the summer. And while I was preaching, some wind or a tornado, we'd had a lot of storms, we even had to postpone worship, but whatever it was, blew open the roof access doors, actually took one of them off, and they were designed very poorly. So all the water on the roof, there's a curtain between me and this, and a sound-canceling stage, so like me in the first row can hear this, water begins to just pour in backstage. And I remember hearing it and thinking, there's a tornado fixing to pull me off this stage in front of all these people. Um, and I thought, if my director has a brain in his head, he'll run up here and go, we've had another Enoch. But anyway, one day y'all will be reading your Bible and you'll get that. But anyway, yeah, so I, I'll never forget the sound of that water. It was terrifying. That's the idea. His judgment on sin is going to be terrifying. You with me? Let's keep moving. Going to pick up speed. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Now, verses 20 and 21 also tell us that these are the angels. So the angel can be a messenger. It can be a warrior, supernatural being, can be the pastor. It's the idea of the representative of the church. You with me? What does that mean? Just hear them, hear that being read to them. They're going, John, what do you mean he has us in his right hand? John, he, he has us in his right hand, John, or he has us in his right hand? What do you mean, John? Y'all see the tension growing there? What's he going to do with us? Keep going. Verse 16, halfway through. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Oh, 
This gets explained in Revelation 19. All the nations of the world and all the enemies of the Lamb gather to do battle with the Lamb and the one on the throne. And they come up and they're fixing to take him down. He opens his mouth and they are slaughtered before him before the battle ever starts. And the birds of the earth gorge their self on their flesh. He has an unstoppable weapon. He will not be defeated. There's no enemy that will contend against this judge. And then the last thing it tells us about him. It says that his face was like the sun shining in full strength. That's imagery from the book of Judges. Deborah and Barak fight one of the many ites of the Old Testament. And in this battle they win. And when they finish, they write a song. And it describes the ultimate warrior of God as having a face which shines like the sun in full strength. He's the ultimate judge, the ultimate warrior. He's everlasting. No enemy will outlast him. He's all-knowing. No enemy will outsmart him. He has the all-powerful weapon. No enemy will outtech him. He is all-powerful. No enemy will overpower him. And he's with the church. Well, they're sitting here at this point going, John, what's the point? Get to it. Just keep reading. I know you are too, so let's get to it. Verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. It's not a natural reaction. So you either run from it, you fight it, or you just freeze. Right? Fight, flight, or freeze. John doesn't do any of those. He casts himself down before this one. Why? Face down before this thing is a symbol of submission and, and, and submission. It can be a symbol of trust, but at the very least, it's submission. I can't fight you. I can't run from you. Boom. It's a supernatural response. Then the tension grows more. This next part, the tension goes to its fever pitch. But he laid his right hand on me. Now, right there, church, they're familiar with the Old Testament, especially Ephesus. That's symbolism of Yom Kippur. If you don't know Yom Kippur, that means Day of Atonement. It's still celebrated, even though not carried out this way because there's not a temple. Yom Kippur is the day you hear about when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies with the blood on the hyssop branch to sprinkle on the mercy seat. He would have... Ten days at least of purification in which a bull would be sacrificed for he and his family's sins and all these things. But on the day of atonement, he would send one goat into the wilderness for Belial, whatever that means. That would represent the guilt of the nation taken away. And then another goat, he would lay his hand on its head and slit its throat, known as the propitiation goat. It represented a substitute who would bear the punishment for sin because if God is going to be just, he can't let sin slide and it must be punished. This goat would represent that punishment for sin would come. The high priest would lay his hand on its head and he would have to watch its life drain out as it bled out. I know that's gross imagery, but sin's gross. When John has his hand laid on me, folks, the next thing these churches expect is a knife to the throat. The all-powerful judge is here to judge us. They expect the sword of my mouth to the throat of the church. But it's beautiful.
he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. Can you just hear them at that point? Fear not, church. That's so good. Fear not. I, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And this is the last verse we'll cover. Look what he just told them. He just told them, hey, don't fear the worst thing they can throw at you in life. Smyrna, Philadelphia, I know you got persecution coming. Thyatira, Pergamum, I know there's pressure. Don't fear the worst thing this world can do to you. Why? Well, the worst it can do is torture you, separate your family, and kill you. That's exactly what they did to me, church. This is Jesus speaking. He'll stand as the lamb which stands as though it's been slain in Revelation 5. He's going, the worst thing they can do to you, they did to me, and I'm back. Not only am I back, I beat it. You see see that? Why does the church not have to fear that? Because they're with the hero. Because of who they're with. It's not about them. It's not about them. It's about the one they're with. And then he says this. He says, don't fear life. And then he says, don't fear death. But look how he says it. He says, and I have the keys to death and Hades. Hey, don't fear what this afterlife might bring. I'm not going to go into all the ideas there with death and Hades and the personification of it. But we get that don't fear dying and don't don't fear hell out of that. Now, I want to ask you a question. We still commonly believe in old Greek pantheon heresy, okay? Well, let's get this straightened out if any of us still believes it. Who is in control of hell? God, not the devil. Y'all, that's good news. Every time you see the little cartoons of the devil running around with his pitchfork, poking people in hell, having a good old time, he's not boss in hell. Do you know what Satan is in hell? He is a prisoner. He is one who has been conquered. He is one who is under the dominion of the hero. He has no power in that place. He has no say in that place. He is prisoner. And because Jesus holds the keys to that place, those who are with Jesus need never fear that place. What a judgment to hear that the all-powerful judge has come and when you expected a knife to the throat, he said, I got you, even though you got issues. Hmm. That's such good news. I want to close with an illustration, and then I'm going to ask the the band to come and lead us in a time of reflection and response. I I give this story. Um, I don't intend for this to be emotional. I'll just be honest with you. I lost my dad in December, and it's a story about my dad. So if I'm emotional, this is, actually should be a funny story. But forgive me. So where I grew up was northeast Mississippi on a hay farm. Uh, I live close to New Orleans now, but you can hear it in the accent a little bit, I'm guessing. Uh, So north Mississippi on a hay farm, we lived a quarter of a mile, 400 meters from my grandparents. And we would walk to my grandparents to see them, my dad's parents, all the time, and and that was fine. Um, But if you got kids where I grew up, little kids, you can't let them get far from you outside. See, I live in New Orleans now. I don't walk down the street by myself at 11 o'clock at night close to New Orleans because I might get mugged. I didn't walk outside after dark where I grew up, not because I might get mugged, but because something might eat me, okay? Uh, So if you got kids and you're outside, you don't let them get far from you. Well, I would like to play games when we'd walk back and forth to my grandparents, and I'd try to run out ahead of my parents. 
And y'all, that, while that seems funny, all it takes is one coyote seeing a four-year-old. It's, you got to be careful. So one day, I start running out ahead of my parents and my dad saying, son, slow down. And I'm like, I can outrun you. Ha, ha, ha. You know, and I just take off. And then I hear my dad say this. He says, Walt, run as fast as you can. And so what I do, I turn around and look. When I turn around and look, my dad had an old creosote fence post above his head and was running at me. And I thought, I've done it. He's going to kill me. And in my heart, I believed I was about to be beaten with a fence post. So I did. I started running as fast as I could. And my dad was faster than I thought I was. Um, As I kept running, I looked, and he was gaining on me with this fence post. And as he gets maybe 10, 15, 20 feet, somewhere in that range, I don't know, I just remember him coming, and I hear him go, ah, and I turn to look, expecting, and he's coming down to the ground with that fence post. And when he hits the ground, a black racer snake pops up. Now, you may tell me they're not poisonous. We didn't know and don't care, okay? My dad commenced to beating that snake with that fence post. It was a bad scene. But I'll never forget going, I thought he was fixing to kill me. And he had come to my defense. Folks, hear this portrait of the king. Hear how terrifying it would be to be on the other side of that wrath. And then realize he has not come to punish you. He has come to your defense. And if you are with this king, you need not fear any enemy. If you are with this king, if this is your hero, you need not fear what this life can throw at you, and you need not fear what the next life could throw at you, because you're with the king. So my question to you this morning is, are you with the king? Church, if you're in this room and you're a believer, you need to live like you got a hero. And people who have a hero look different than people who don't. They'll do crazy stuff because they know they got a hero. Are you living like you belong to this king? If you're here and you've never trusted Jesus, would you hear what he came for? He came that no matter what sin we've committed, he would pay for it at the cross. He would conquer that penalty and he would share his righteousness with us if we would trust him. If you've never trusted him and him alone as your hero, as your atoner, as the one to take every horrible thing, every bad thing, everything we feel is just kind of bad, and provide forgiveness for us, would you trust him today? Because there is no other way. Would you trust him today? So what does that look like? I'm going to be up here uh, on the front row. I'm just going to let our band lead us through a time of response. And what I want you to do, if you're trusting Jesus for the first time, you come get me and we'll talk. And I'm going to get you to some of the church leaders here and they're going to walk you through what it looks like to get to discipleship. If you're a believer, during this time of response, I want you to ask yourself, am I living like one who has a hero? Because that can mean changing jobs in a radical way. College students, that can mean you don't major in what you major in. That can mean, Walt, you don't get to take the banker job you got for you coming out of college. you got to go to seminary. It can mean a lot of crazy stuff. His love's the only love that'll take you by the hand and the throat at the same time, and you'll be so glad it did. Would you this morning ask what it means to live outside those doors like one who has a hero and let the Holy Spirit help you develop a plan to go do that as we leave this morning? I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask our worship team to come, and I want you to respond as the Holy Spirit leads now. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus.
Lord, you are so good. You have come to our rescue when we could not rescue ourselves. You have remained with us when we have issues that we don't even know we have. Thank you for holding us when we could never hold on to you. Thank you for calling us to righteousness, but loving us in failure. Thank you for improving us and teaching us to get up again when we fall. Thank you for being the hero. Lord, please be gentle, and I do mean that, Lord. I pray as a coward, but I mean it. Be gentle, but please be effective in helping us to live as those who have a hero. If any here, Father, have never trusted you, please, Spirit, speak in their hearts and their minds now and lead them to Jesus as only you can. Turn hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. Put breath in these bodies that they may live. We love you, Lord, and it is only through Christ we come to you.